Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Connecticut's newest cannabis dispensary opened on Friday, February 17th. That audio was gathered from WTNH News 8. Fine Fettle in Manchester is the state's first equity joint venture cannabis store. Equity joint ventures are part of a state program to award cannabis licenses to those who partner with people who lived in areas disproportionately affected by drug-related convictions or high unemployment. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we look at cannabis in Connecticut after the first legal recreational sales started in January. Coming up, Dr. Amanda Ryman of New Frontier Data will break down the latest cannabis numbers for Connecticut. And later, we talk to Helen Caraballo. She faced a drug-related conviction over 10 years ago. And today, she's hoping that the state's new clean slate law will be expanded to clear her record and give her more opportunities. But first, Ben Zachs. He's CEO of Fine Fettle. In addition to that Manchester location, Fine Fettle operates dispensaries across Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Kennard Ray is CEO of Fine Fettle in Manchester. He's also founder of Full Citizens Coalition. It's a group committed to increasing civic engagement and restoring voting rights to formerly incarcerated individuals. Ben and Kennard, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having us, Kalila. Ben, let's start with you, because so much of the debate about cannabis in Connecticut has been about the social equity component. So share with our listeners, what exactly is social equity and how does it relate to licensing for cannabis in Connecticut? Sure. So I'm not sure if people are familiar, but cannabis is not only uh, five weeks old. This has been a plant that's been selling uh, and people have been using and consuming for Many, many, many years, uh, both in Connecticut and at large. And if you look at the realities of that, right, cannabis essentially becomes illegal in 1906. And then we have the really failed war on drugs. And I think so much of the reality around the history of this plant is an enormous, enormous impact on specific communities around our state, around our country, um, generally lower income communities. And to a vast, vast, vast majority of uh, areas of, of where mainly people of color have lived. And so social equity in cannabis to me means righting the wrongs of the past, but also creating a future where that is diverse and paying homage to the realities of the past and trying to create a future that um, has three levels, ownership, jobs, and community impact. Um, and not just understanding that this is just a business that we're trying to promote and push forward, but doing it the right way. Let's continue with that aim, because it sounds 
like you see this as a form of restorative justice, of acknowledging those harms of the past and trying to correct some of them by creating more opportunities, not just for individuals, but also for communities. And I'm curious then about your process of now having a fourth store in Connecticut, in addition to the ones that you have in Massachusetts, how does that past, a recognition of that past, this current process, shape the process to open here in Connecticut with an eye toward social equity? Sure. So the first element of that really comes from Connecticut's government and the legislature. Uh, I think wealth, oftentimes in our country, people think it's all you know private business and industry, but it's oftentimes the ability to have an opportunity given by government. And I think Connecticut has done that. Connecticut's done it um, in three sort of ways with cannabis. Uh, so there are the disproportionate impact area cultivators, which is a cultivation facility that has to be owned in a percentage in a percentage by people from those DIAs with your facility located in a DIA. The second is a regular quote unquote license that goes through a social equity lottery for applicants who meet those criteria. And then the third way is these equity joint ventures, which is how we've you know, opened this dispensary in Manchester and plan to open five others as well. And, you know, for us, um, it starts with the partnership. It starts with the people. And so our team is all from the Hartford area. We're all from Connecticut. And so we found, first and foremost, an unbelievable partner uh, with somebody who we've known for at least 20 years and two others who we've known for longer to build that team and that partnership, right? And so that sort of is when I talk about this idea of the triangle that's sort of the tip of the triangle, creating entrepreneurs and creating partners that aren't just business partners, but for us is a true um, relationship. Because if you have a relationship, the business hopefully works itself out. And that's where, you know, Canard specifically fits in. The second of it is locating your facilities within areas that have been impacted and having a plan to give back into uh, areas, whether that's through job creation, whether that's through, um, you know, local philanthropic work, whether it's partnering with businesses, that's sort of the second. And then third of it by the state and by what we're doing is both giving donations and tax dollars that impact the communities that have been most harmed. And so, you know, it's really needing to be done at all three levels to create, uh, I think, a positive and equitable an equitable future around this industry, around the businesses, around the way these businesses are operating and around a positive impact into the communities that have been most affected and understanding that there is a truth that there's been you know, more harm done in certain areas than others. Kunar, let's bring you into this conversation because I'm curious, as Ben talks about the relationship building and the partnership, I'm curious what this means for you, because you are someone who's been actively involved in the state for quite some time. What does it mean for you to be part of this first equity joint venture location in Connecticut and all of the opportunities that it has to bring these layers together in this partnership? I, I love your language around restorative justice, right? Uh, I think, I mean, restorative justice is something that we've it's a it's, it's language that we've uh, used nationally for quite some time, but I haven't heard it that much in this push for legalized adult use cannabis or for legalized cannabis, uh, period. And I think that's exactly what um, our legislature did and what our social equity council did in creating um, the space for folks like me, uh, to be quite frank, 
to to make sure that we had an opportunity to get into this business that um, uh, a business that had sustained our communities in ways for so long, uh, culturally been a part of our communities for so long, but we've been cr criminalized by it for so long. And so what we've seen um, in passage across the country um, in the uh, states that have passed adult use prior to Connecticut, we've seen social equity coming in on the back end. Um, and I think uh, for once, we can say that this seems like we got it right. Uh, ben and I opening the store, it feels like we got it right. It feels like we can be the model for what um, is to come for the future and to be a part of that. What that means for me is it's, it means so much it's hard to grasp, grasp it at this time. But um, this is something that, you know, for, for, for equitable rights, I've fought for for so long. So to have a right to have a seat, not only a seat at the table, but to kind of set your own up, um, it's been incredible. And I, I think it means a, a lot for not just me, but anyone else working to get into the cannabis business going forward. Ben, let me ask you, I wonder what you've encountered. You know, have you seen differences in the journey to open in Connecticut as opposed to Massachusetts? Yeah. So Fine Federal operates or our you know, affiliates in a sense operate in Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and then we were given a notice of intent of award for a license in Georgia. So three of those four states touch each other and, and the laws and the rules could not be more different. And, and the structures of what you need to do locally and the ability to operate, they're each incredibly different, but the consistency is that everything is local, right? So whether it's Mass or whether it's Connecticut, you have to embed yourself positively into the local community where you are and, you know, understand the dynamics of what their goals and what they're looking for. And so, you know, we've been fortunate and lucky that we've got a partner, a like Kennard, who, you know, is sitting with us at the table as we're making strategic decisions on how to operate, right? And where to go and how to position ourselves. I think Kennard also, you know, not to toot our own horn, but I think we're a good partner because we move forward. Like the fact that Fine Fettle has opened this facility up five weeks after adult use is is a testament to the way that we've worked and the way that we've locked down real estate and gone and driving buildings. I mean, in cannabis, you run a marathon to start the race, right? Like getting open is the first step, but it's also the end of an arduous, long journey. And in Connecticut with, you know, a lot of not in my backyard, a lot of, you know, skepticism, sort of land a steady habit sometimes about 100 out of 169 towns are saying no to cannabis. Plus, we have to put these things 20 miles away from each other. And so the difficulty is immense. But if you have a sort of strategic plan and a focus, you get the opportunity to put yourself in a position to really succeed. And on the entrepreneurship side, right, like we think that this business is one where first to market matters pretty much more than anything. And so our sort of singularly driven goal has been to get to be first to market, which I think we've done. We were three of the first seven dispensaries open in the state. We're the first EJV. Now we represent four of the 10. And, you know, I want to be five, six, seven, eight, and nine out of the first 20. And um, I'm not shy about having that goal, but I also have a team who, you know, is singularly focused to do that. And then an operations team to make it happen in a really excellent way once we get to that starting line of opening the store. And, you know, it, it all fits because this business is hard. 
as a young man, Kennard Ray spent time in jail on drug and gun charges. His convictions made news in 2013 when the then mayor of Hartford appointed him as deputy chief of staff. Ray withdrew his nomination and he later ran for state office. I asked him how this background and his experience plays into his role as CEO of this newest dispensary and in the cannabis business overall. There was not a thing but faith to help me believe that this day would ever come. Right. There, there was not evidence of when I start just when I originally began the work to uh, make sure that people have equal and, and fair rights. Right. Like folks who have been discriminated against have the the fair right uh, to push back on that. Um, uh, who knew that this would ever happen? So I think it plays a thousand percent into um, how I lead my team, how I, how how we hire uh, and how we how we really look at how we're going to make a positive impact um, on the communities around us, no matter how many stores um, that we open up, no matter how many uh, people that we proudly are able to serve. Um, there's still a greater purpose in serving folks. And um, yeah, I definitely think that our team at Five Federal is not only prepared to do it, but has a history and a track record of doing that and that I myself have a history and track record of doing that. And it's something that um, I believe is a, is a, we've, we, we have a proud marriage there. Anytime and anywhere that we can help fill, fill gaps, um, to stand in the gaps where, you know, there, there are some breakdowns between the legacy market and the uh, newer commercial market. And um, there's some spaces that we can fill. Uh, we have the ability, the time, and also kind of the mandate by the Social Equity Council to, to, to do this, but it's in us, right? It's in me, it's in Ben, it's a part of what we do, it's a part of who we are. So there are people right now uh, in this state and in other states who, but particularly in our state, who believe that their participation in the cannabis um, market is not possible because of past felonies, that their participation in the cannabis market is not possible because of the zip code that they grew up in. Right. Um, I want to be that example. I want to show people that your your participation in this market and other markets is more than possible. And that means that I have to dig as deep as possible to pull that out of me and inject it as the into the business. Ben, I want to end with you because there seems to be so much possibility here in this space and, and so much that even though, you know, cannabis has been around for quite some time, this particular industry, the adult use legalization in Connecticut is still relatively new. As you think about the future in this space, the, the future of your partnership in this space, how important is it to continue this social equity kind of partnership as you think about the future of the space and your role in it? I think the most important element of it is that this industry is so fascinating because there's a mandate in a sense to do it, right? Like we can call a spade a spade there a little bit, but there is a focus that we need to do right and do good, right? And so this is my take. And I understand that I am a privileged white kid from West Hartford, um, but that we have to be intentional and we need to speak about the realities of where we have been. And we need to have a specific and laid out plan to where we are going because 
if you don't have sort of intention, elements of it get lost. And for us, I think the the part that's really important to recognize is that if we fulfill all of our goals of giving back to the communities we're in, of creating hundreds and hundreds of jobs, I mean, fine, federal, my expectation by the end is we're going to roughly have about five to 600 jobs in Connecticut. If we are going to volunteer in our local areas, if we are going to work on expungement programs, if we are going to invest in um, the communities where we are, if we're going to partner with local businesses, if we're going to um, give back to 501c3s in our area, if we're going to educate around cannabis and cannabis safety, those are all in the goals of what we have to do. And honestly, if we hit those goals, our business is going to be fine. Ben Zax is COO of Fine Federal Dispensaries, and Kennard Ray is CEO of Fine Federal in Manchester. Thank you both for joining the show. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, Dr. Amanda Ryman of New Frontier Data takes us through projected increases in cannabis sales for Connecticut. And later we'll hear what it's like to live with a drug-related felony. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Connecticut's Department of Consumer Protection released cannabis sales numbers for the month of January. During that time, over $13 million in sales were generated between medical and adult use cannabis. We wanted to put those numbers in context and understand what those trends mean for the emerging cannabis industry. Here to explain that data is Dr. Amanda Ryman. She's Chief Knowledge Officer of New Frontier Data. It's a policy and research organization that looks at the global cannabis industry. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get right to the basics. So share with our listeners, what is New Frontier Data and what's your role as the Chief Knowledge Officer? So New Frontier Data is a software analytics and insights company that serves the regulated cannabis industry. So we gather data from several different sources, from our consumer survey, from market data. Uh, We do our own market projections. We look at foot traffic data all to better understand the different state markets, 
how different cannabis verticals are performing in those markets, and also really what's behind consumer motivation to choose certain products, to go to different dispensaries. And the idea is to give these companies insights into who their consumers are, what they're after, and then looking at that in the larger context of their state markets. So as Chief Knowledge Officer, I head up our research team and really helping bring together these different data sources to create a holistic, interesting, and informative story for brands, retailers, and others in the cannabis space. Let's talk about an issue that has been front and center in debates over whether to legalize in Connecticut and other states, and also what many people have have offered as a benefit of that, and that is the ability to generate revenue and profit. We're starting to now get in some sales reports from the Department of Consumer Protection. What stands out to you as you review those reports and those early indicators about sales? Well, I think one of the goals of legalization is to take the money that's being spent in the illicit market, that the illicit market is generating, and to move that revenue over to the regulated market so that it can be used for programs, right? So that it can be used for schools and that so it can be used for public works and so that it can be used for education. And when that money is being made in the illicit market, None of that happens, right? That money goes into the pockets of those that are fueling the illicit market. It doesn't have the opportunity to create revenue for the community. And even though, you know, we live in a capitalist country, and so there's a lot of focus on making money, the reality is this money's already being made, right? This this money's already being put in the hands of people. And so we want to make sure that it's being put in the hands of people that can actually turn around and use it to do better for the community. One of the real pressures that Connecticut faced was what was happening in other states like Massachusetts. And you heard many people say, yes, this money is being made anyway. Either we can make that money here in Connecticut or we can continue to sort of make that money in other places and not see the opportunity to convert that into positive public use for those kinds of projects. When you look at Connecticut's sales numbers, how does that compare to Massachusetts? All right. So I do pull some data uh, for Connecticut versus Massachusetts. So as you can imagine, Connecticut is much smaller. Um, Connecticut has 17 dispensaries and Massachusetts has 270 dispensaries. Uh, But the use rates aren't that different, which I know we'll get into. But when we're looking at sales, so for Connecticut, for example, um, looking at a week of sales in January, We saw adult use bring in $1.5 million. We saw medical bring in $2.7 million. Uh, For a week in Massachusetts, we saw adult use bring in $27.7 million. And I was only able to get the data for the entire month of January for medical uh, in Massachusetts, but it was $14 million. There's another component here that when we talk about business development and being business and industry friendly in a state like Connecticut, it's not just about the cannabis industry, but industries overall. Connecticut often feels like it's in competition with Massachusetts, its ability to attract business visitors, its ability to attract tourism, and again, all of those collateral opportunities to increase revenue and to perhaps target more consumers or engage with more consumers. 
given what you just outlaid in terms of the number of dispensaries, I'm blown away by that comparison. Does it even make sense to think of Connecticut as being in competition with the neighboring state? Or should we focus on those unique factors here in the state that drive some of those revenue numbers that, as you said, you've already seen in just one week of sales data? Well, I don't necessarily think it's a matter of competition. You know, when one state is legal and another state isn't, we absolutely see people travel across the border in order to obtain their cannabis. However, consumers are looking for convenience, right? Cannabis consumers are no different than any other consumers. They want something that's close to them. They want something that's easy to access. So once a state goes legal, we do see less travel across the border in order to obtain cannabis. If you have a dispensary down the street from you, why would you drive an hour uh, to go get one in a different state? So I think that, you know, it's really looking at the residents and the people that live within that state and getting their needs met. Um, And, you know, depending on the type of state you live in, what kind of attractions you have, you might see people come from outside just to use cannabis. But the reality is they're going to be more gravitating towards tourism centers, uh, places where people are traveling anyway. And having cannabis there is just kind of a bonus. And I did look at the consumer profiles of who is using cannabis in Connecticut versus Massachusetts. And the top two profiles in both states are the same. Right. So you're finding very similar types of people who are consumers in both states And your consumer rate per capita is very similar. So even though Massachusetts has a much bigger population, in Connecticut, you're seeing about 191 annual consumers per 1,000 people. And in Massachusetts, that's 220 consumers per 1,000 people. So even though overall, you might see Massachusetts have a larger number of consumers, the consumption rate is very similar. So you wouldn't need as many dispensaries in Connecticut to service that overall consumer population, but you absolutely have interest in Connecticut on par with Massachusetts. I think that idea of scale is important in terms of consumption rates, uh, in terms of the distinctions between medical patients and adult use patients. But it also raises the question, Amanda, of, you know, what are the products that people are buying? If people have options, they now have choice and where they go and, and the reasons why they go. What does the data show in terms of what they're buying? Flower remains queen. Most people that go to dispensaries are looking for some kind of flower product. And whether that's loose flower or whether that's a pre-roll, over 80% of consumers say that they consume flower. However, something that we're starting to see as an up-and-comer in new markets especially are things like edibles. So individuals that are looking for um, a great experience, but they don't want to smoke, Uh, They want to be able to take their edible to a party or to a ball game or to some place where they're able to use it without people knowing what they're doing. And especially among younger folks who are really rejecting the idea of smoking altogether, we're starting to see edibles become more popular. And with the edibles, a subcategory of that are beverages. So another trend that we're seeing are people wanting to replace alcohol with cannabis. Uh, The younger generation, I would call them the Gen Zs, they're very much not into drinking. 
And so not only are you seeing a rise in alternatives to alcohol, so um, non-alcoholic spirits and mixes and things like that, bars that specialize in non-alcoholic beverages, cannabis beverages have also come a long way in terms of technology. A lot of these beverages are very low dose. So we're talking about like two milligrams of THC per can. Uh, we're starting to see companies like Lagunitas and Paps Blue Ribbon uh, put out cannabis beverages with the recognition that when we look forward, I think we're going to see fewer consumers interested in smoking flour and more consumers interested in eating or drinking their cannabis. Amanda, there will be people listening to this who say, this is great. People have options. They have different products, different uses based on their individual needs and interests. And some will say that's great. And then there will be other people who will listen to this and say, this is absolutely terrifying that now Pabst Blue Ribbon has a cannabis infused beverage, or now I have to think about, um, you know, the difference of products. And of course, it's not like this didn't happen before. I think that now people are talking about it more. In other sectors, we've seen the alcohol industry partnering with states to promote responsible use, responsible adult use. We've seen the tobacco industry forced to do it by the courts or by, you know, uh, congressional federal legislation. What do you expect or what should we expect from the cannabis industry when it comes to these kinds of partnerships to promote safe, healthy, legal adult usage? Well, I will say if the cannabis industry is smart, then they will get out ahead of this. They will not get to a point where they are being forced, like the tobacco industry, to admit that there are potential harms from using their product. Because the reality is nothing is all good and nothing is all bad. And there is such thing as responsible use of cannabis. Now, it is true you cannot fatally overdose on cannabis. And that is a main difference between cannabis and alcohol. However, cannabis causes intoxication. Cannabis can cause impairment. Cannabis can be habit-forming. Certain methods of consuming cannabis, like smoking, may have health implications. Cannabis should not be somewhere where young people or children have access to it. So it definitely isn't this kind of free-for-all scenario. And I believe, as someone who is a public health researcher, that if the cannabis industry doesn't do this from the get-go, if they aren't really speaking the truth, about the both the potential harms and the potential benefits of using this product, we're going to end up in a situation where people start questioning whether legalization was the right move. But our society is not very good at moderation. We like to take something that we enjoy and just use it, use it, use it. Um, and that's not the way you want to approach cannabis. I like to say that cannabis use is a marathon. It isn't a sprint. And for many people, cannabis will be most useful to them when they're older, when they're having trouble sleeping, when they're having aches and pains, when they're kind of going through these changes associated with aging. And so, you know, really hitting it so hard when you're a young person may negatively impact your ability to find benefits from it later on. 
I want to thank you for raising those public health interests because, as you said, nothing is all good, nothing is all bad. And too often in this debate, it is all or nothing. Either you are for legalization or you are against it. And there seems to be no middle ground. And I'm always thinking about the communities that have been disproportionately harmed by prohibition, but also those who share disproportionate health risk that may make them predisposed to negative outcomes if moderation is not employed here. And then thinking about more broadly, the future of this industry, the market growth and the potential. This is not going away. Even if people start to question, it's not going away. What do you see when you look at the data, when you look at the trends? You know, what are you seeing for the next five years or so here in Connecticut? Oh, well, I do have some really interesting data that I can share with you, some like market projections here. So something that's really interesting about Connecticut is that we are going to see the um, recreational market grow, right? So we're projecting for 2023, um, looking at about $289 million being generated um, from uh, adult use cannabis in 2023. And we expect that by 2030, that number is going to grow to about $1.4 billion. So we're definitely looking at amazing growth here in Connecticut. Now, something else, though, to consider is that when we look at the medical market size, we're projecting about $189 million for 2023. But that seems like it's going to go down to about 151 million in 2030. Now, the reason for that is that there's folks that are medical patients because that was the only way they could access cannabis. And now that there's adult use, they're like, okay, I don't necessarily need to renew my medical card. In every state so far that has gone from medical to adult use, we have seen a reduction in the number of medical patients. We have seen a reduction in the medical market because it people just have more options. And so if they are, you know, not consuming very often, they may decide that it isn't worth it to go for the cost of getting a medical card and that they're just going to become an adult consumer. But one thing that I want to point out that I think is really interesting is the illicit market size. So we're valuing the illicit market in Connecticut in 2023 at $966 million. We expect that by 2030, that's going to drop to $215 million. So when we look at that growth in the adult use market, it is primarily pulling from the illicit market. And that's really the goal of legalization, right? The overall goal of legalization is to see that money move from the illicit market into the regulated market. And that's what we're projecting for Connecticut. Dr. Amanda Ryman is Chief Knowledge Officer of New Frontier Data. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we explore Connecticut's clean slate law. Helen Caraballo is one of over 280,000 people who are now eligible to have a past criminal record erased. We'll hear her story. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. When Connecticut's clean slate law passed in 2021, criminal records of old and low-level convictions were set to be erased. 
This included charges of misdemeanors after seven years and Class D and E felonies after 10. Clean Slate aims to increase social justice and equity by giving those with prior convictions an opportunity to move forward with a clear record and a better chance of accessing housing and employment. Clean Slate was partially implemented this year, and it affected about 44,000 of the over 280,000 people in the state who have begun that process of having their records expunged. Many of those records include cannabis-related misdemeanors. But for the majority of those who would be eligible, there's been an important delay. According to the state, technology updates and legal concerns have pushed the final phase of Clean Slate to the end of this year. Helen Caraballo is one of those Connecticut residents who may be eligible to have her record automatically expunged once Clean Slate fully passes. Helen, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the beginning so our listeners have an understanding of what you've been navigating for quite some time. What was your conviction and when did it happen? I was convicted back in December of 2011 and it was a conspiracy felony, um, conspiracy to sell narcotics. I was in a vehicle with someone else who had a bunch of drugs on them and because it was my vehicle registered under my name I was driving the vehicle I was also charged so that was my conviction and um, I've been dealing with it ever since so that's about 12 years ago and I want to add a little more layer and context here because you said you'd never been in trouble before this was your the first time yep never been in trouble before haven't been in trouble since so after that conviction, what was the sentence or, you know, what was the direct punishment after that conviction? So it was a waiting game, basically back and forth to court. So I was incarcerated at um, YCI in Niantic for about three months. And um, my mom did retain me an attorney and I was able to get a suspended sentence And I was able to come out, but I did have to plead to the felony charge. There was no fighting it. There was no budging with the prosecutor. They were very firm on giving me the felony, although I didn't have a record before, not even as a juvenile, nothing. So I had to take that in order to come out or it was going to go to trial which then would be the maximum sentence I could have been found, which was five years. So they gave me a suspended sentence. I couldn't get in trouble for a year. And I, if I did, I had five years hanging over my head and I would have to serve that time. Once given that I was released, I had to go and get swabbed um, for my DNA to be registered as a felon in in the database and was able to leave after that. So you said you, you were able to leave after that, but one of the things that we know, Helen, is that even after someone is released, even after they have served their proverbial time, 
that scar does not leave them. It stays with them in so many aspects of their lives. And our listeners can't see this, but I can. I can see that you're in scrubs today as you're talking with us. And I'm told that you had aspirations to be a nurse before this conviction. What's been the impact of, of having to register as a felon or have that on your record? What's been the impact on your career aspiration? So after being released from jail and being convicted as a felon, I still wanted to pursue the medical field, the healthcare field, and try to enroll into school as a nurse. When I spoke to admissions and let them know, obviously the first thing that comes up is, do you have any prior charges? Are you a felon? Have you ever been arrested? And that is on your school application. That's not even while you're in school, a job. It's the application to sign up for school. That comes up. No, I'm sorry. You can't. No, nobody's going to hire you. Try back in seven years. So I went to cosmetology school instead. Nobody really checks your record at a salon. Now, I just finished a CNA program at Gateway. I did have to do a background check there, but it's been over 10 years, so nothing came up. I just got a job opportunity for an assisted living where I have to do my fingerprints. And I let the hiring manager know I have a felony on my record. It's been 11 years. And she's assuring me, don't worry, it only goes back five to seven years. But on every application on anything, school, a job, anything, there's that question. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? Have Do you have a felony? It doesn't matter if it's been seven years, 10 years, 15 years. You have to answer the question honestly because you don't know if that employer or if the school has a time frame of how far they go back. And if you say no, then you're being dishonest. So during interview processes where I have to explain myself, I'm being passed judgment on. I'm considered a liability to employers because I have that conviction. Whether or not I have the best resume, the best experience, somebody, another candidate can come for the same position and they'll choose that person over me because of my conviction. So for the past 11 years, I'm being judged on that one conviction. I want to jump in here because I think you are voicing something that too often goes overlooked or uh, unaccounted for. And what you're speaking to is the, the mental toll of having to constantly explain yourself to having to constantly worry that I've put this effort forth, I'm putting in applications, I'm trying to be self-sufficient, I'm trying to contribute to my community and to my family, and you constantly have to worry about whether this conviction 10 years ago will be held against you before you're even evaluated on your skills or what you contribute. What do you want people to know about the impact of this kind of conviction on the mental health and mental well-being of people who are trying to move through that conviction and do something positive? What should we know about the impact on mental health? Well, I can understand why 
certain individuals fall back into the lifestyle of doing the wrong thing because they're judged. So nobody's giving them a chance. Jail or the correctional facility is supposed to be a place for rehabilitation, right? So you're supposed to be rehabilitated and be able to go back into the community and put your best foot forward, but you can't get a job because you have to be honest on your application. And you're kind of railroaded because you're, you, you are given this cap of who you can be and where you want to go. You're at the mercy of somebody else to dictate your future. So for such a long time, and still now, I live paycheck to paycheck. I have children that I have to take care of. It's not their fault that I had to do this, that I have to deal with this. I should be able to provide to them to the best of my ability. I'm healthy. I can work. I'm motivated. I'm able. But for somebody to go in and say, oh, yes, you're qualified, you're certified. But unfortunately, we wanted to go in a different direction based off of X, Y, Z. It's detrimental. So, you know, you deal with a lot of, you know, self, self-guilt, self-loathing. It's, it's hard. It's frustrating, you know, like to be told you can't be the best person that you want to be because of something that you did or something you were found guilty of. You have to wait X amount of time to go through the process to see, again, if you can be a regular person in the community. Let's talk about that that idea of being a regular person in the community. Connecticut is a state that has passed a clean slate law, which according to legislators was an attempt to restore people so that they could live a life in fullness with options and not only be able to move past their conviction, but actually be able to chart a future. And and what I heard you say, Helen, is that it's not just about you and your future. It's also about the future of your children and your family and the kind of legacy that you want them to have and be able to have choices. How did you learn about the Clean Slate Law? I, um, I am a part of a program that gives resources out that assists with, you know, financial hardships to help you move forward, get on your feet if you're struggling with something. And I got this email blast about the clean sleep. And I was like, let me look into this. I opened it up. I read it. I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Um, I qualify for this. I don't have to pay for this. This is free. This is going to be passed into the law. Because you're able, depending on your conviction, within five to seven years, you can apply for an expungement. But you have to pay for the expungement process. You can either do it yourself or you can hire an attorney to do it for you. Either way, you still have to pay. I don't have $2,500, $3,500 to just put up for that process. So this was something that really benefited me as well as my children, because then I can go on and do the aspirations that I have, complete them. And once I heard that it wasn't 
completed or it wasn't fully passed, it was like, oh, I got to wait again. Or now what do I do? Let me put, you know, the nursing school on hold again and see what's going on because I don't have the money to pay for the expungement process. And, you know, it, it is something my kids see me get up every day, go to work, do school, five in the morning, 11 o'clock at night on my laptop studying, no matter how I feel sick, not feeling well, tired, they see that in me, that work ethic, and which is what I try to instill in them, letting them know that school is very important. Nobody can take that away from you. Education is power. As long as you do what you have to do in school and you achieve what you have to achieve, nobody can take that from you. They don't know mommy was in trouble. Mommy has to do this. They don't know my struggles. They just see me get up and do it. And if they need something, it gets done. So this, this delay in the clean slate, you know, it sets me back, you know, not nothing that I'm not used to, because this is something that occurs and has occurred for the past 11 years that I'm on somebody else's time. It's just something that I've, I've learned to deal with. I've been accustomed and adjusted to. You are used to and accustomed to delays, as you said, but delays don't have to be denials. There can be this opportunity to have a better chance and for your children to do that as well. Helen, If you have the opportunity to talk to state lawmakers right now, and I know the program, the organization Connect, that has been a strong advocate for people on this and getting this message across to lawmakers. If you could say one thing to lawmakers who are now debating which convictions should be eligible, what's the one thing that you would say to them? I would say we deserve a chance just like everyone else. We've served our time. We we did what we were supposed to do based on the consequences of our actions. How long do we have to keep paying for those consequences? As long as we meet the criteria, we should be eligible. It should be something that should be given to us. It's what was told that we deserved. It was told that we were going to be granted. We deserve to move on in life. We don't have to keep carrying this ball and chain around with us. Helen Carvalho is one of the over 250,000 residents of Connecticut who may be eligible to have her record expunged under clean slate. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. A very special thank you to Connect. That's Congregations Organized for New Connecticut for connecting us with Helen. Disrupted is produced by Wayne Edwards, Kevin Chang Barnum, Emily Cherish, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. We'll be back next week. <laughs>